But I'd like you to open in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Um, I had mentioned a week or so ago that uh, I was thinking about a January-February reading together. Isaiah has 66 chapters, and we're going to be reading them two chapters a day through January and February, and I will be uh, preaching through uh, the book of Isaiah. It's uh, still going to be a bit of a fast pace. As I mentioned, you could spend years in Isaiah and uh, not exhaust it by any means. It's a wonderful book. Isaiah, uh, his name literally means Jehovah is salvation. And he is called the evangelical prophet. Uh, and in Isaiah, we have so much uh, to say about the coming of Messiah, Emmanuel, and the promise that God uh, is going to fulfill in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. And Isaiah... Uh, probably spends more time than any other prophet prophesying that. It's interesting how the book is uh, divided up. Of course, uh, when the Bible was originally written, the, the Isaiah's own handwriting, or whomever, uh, Isaiah wrote it, but I, he may have had some help uh, putting it down on uh, parchment or whatever, but... Um, the 39 chapters in the beginning have a lot to do with Israel uh, and Judah. And then we get to chapter 40, and it almost turns its whole focus toward the coming Messiah. And the interesting thing about that is, out of 66 uh, chapters in Isaiah, how many books are in the Bible? 66. And how many are in the Old Testament? 39. And 27 in the New Testament. And Isaiah neatly uh, breaks up in exactly that uh, pattern so that um, these the flow of the book goes from old to new and uh, almost follows the pattern of Scripture itself. Some of you may have uh, heard that um, there's some debate. Is there just one Isaiah? Were there two or three that contributed to the writing of Isaiah? And it's interesting that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were very, very diligent to be sure to copy the ancient writings, specifically how they found them. In fact, you've, many of you have heard me tell the story that uh, a scribe in uh, copying a book was permitted three corrections. Um, he could scratch out three letters and replace them with the correct one if he made an error. But after that, he had to burn the book and start over. Um, and so uh, he was very, very careful. And furthermore, they were careful to follow precisely the number of letters in the lines uh, 
and keep everything exactly in the order and columns that uh, the book he was copying had, because they wore out. Uh, They were out of uh, deteriorating materials, and they would wear out, and so it was a constant need to copy them, and they took that so very seriously. And when you get to the end of chapter 39 in the Dead Sea Scrolls of Isaiah, which is a complete book, there's one verse, space for one verse at the bottom, which is our chapter 40, verse 1. And they put it right at the bottom at the end of 39 to begin the 40th chapter, as though it were a seamless whole. And in fact, it is a seamless whole. And the only reason that liberal scholarship has a problem with Isaiah is because he wrote 700 years before Christ, and he wrote some things so very specifically. For example, speaking of Cyrus, who was still way out in the future, and speaking of Jesus, and uh, they said, there's no way he could know that. Well, that's what prophecy's all about, is God giving us uh, insight and uh, a foretaste of the future. And so uh, Isaiah gives us that kind of uh, pre-written history that demonstrates the divine inspiration of this book. Isaiah had a career that spanned at least 40 years. He was married. He had two sons that we know of because they're mentioned in the book. And uh, he was the son of Amos. And that's about all we know. Uh, There's not a lot of history about Isaiah himself other than he, he is one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament period. In his... uh, period of prophecy of about 40 years, he tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, that he began during the reign of Uzziah, who, by the way, was a king in Judah for about uh, 57 or 8 years, and then Jotham, and then Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. These were the kings of Judah under which he served. And Uzziah died in approximately 740 B.C. And Hezekiah, uh, when Judah was finally uh, overrun and uh, carried off into captivity, um, it was approximately 701 or in that period of time. So Isaiah prophesied through a 40-plus year career during the reigns of these four kings. And it's an interesting time because by now, despite the character and quality of the king, the people of Judah, along with their northern counterpart, have departed from the ways of God. One of the kings, the last king mentioned, Hezekiah, 
was one of the greatest kings that Judah uh, experienced. In fact, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 5, uh, this is what uh, the record says about Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went, he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So Hezekiah, right at the end of that period, was a very godly king. But nonetheless, the nation had deteriorated so far into spiritual and moral depravity that uh, God's patience with them had become exhausted. Now, in this first chapter, Isaiah kind of gives us a recap and an overview of his entire prophecy. And the themes that recur throughout Isaiah are expressed here in chapter 1 as he writes about the nature of the people of Judah and what is happening with them. I'd like to just take this verse by verse this morning and read in it, and let's look at the condition of Judah. Verse 2, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up but they have revolted against me. Some of you parents know that feeling. But notice that God looks at the people of Judah and he calls them sons. They're family to him. He loves them dearly. Uh, God is committed to them. And yet, he says, they have revolted against me. And he says this about them, and this is God speaking, An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. You know, that's a powerful statement, because when you break it down and put it in our vernacular, it's basically saying your oxen and your donkeys are smarter than you are. You're pretty, you're pretty dumb. <laughs> they, they know who takes care of them. They know who provides for them. And they go there. But you have revolted against me, and all I have done is cared for you and provided for you. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. This is an amazing 
uh, statement after statement of the the depravity into which Judah uh, has sunk and their attitude toward God, that they have turned away from him in all respects. And he asked them, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Now, you may read that and at first blush think that it's talking about some kind of physical illness. But it's actually not. It's talking about a flogging and a discipline that has come against the people of Judah. And he says, where will you be stricken next? Where, where do you want the next lash? Look at all you have suffered, and you're still resistant and rebellious. He says, from the sole of your foot, even to the head, verse 6, there's nothing sound, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds. This is a description of a flogging that they have suffered as a consequence of their rebellion. And by the way, um, you know, sometimes we think that because of our sin, um, God himself is punishing us. But the reality is that oftentimes we're simply reaping what we've sown. We've caused our own misery. We've plunged ourselves into disaster and a lot of the the consequences that we reap are a result of bad choices that we have made turning away from the lord godly people suffer that's a fact of life jesus said if the world hates me it's going to hate you too there's nothing in Scripture that says only the wicked suffer and the righteous are always blessed and never have any trouble. There's nothing in Scripture about that. But the penalty and the pain of reaping a harvest of your own foolishness is a terrible kind of suffering. And often God uses that as discipline to gain your attention. The scripture says, first of all, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But if that doesn't work, he has other means. And oftentimes it's simply allowing us to reap the things that we've sown. And so can you imagine being uh, tied to a stump or a stake and flogged? And after your skin is shredded and you've got welts and wheels and and uh, raw open wounds to say, hit me again. Give me another one. Put it on my shoulders this time. That's the question he's asking. What's wrong with you? <laughs> what are you thinking about that you would request? Another, another stroke. And so 
he says, here's what you suffered. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. You have foreigners that are coming in and eating your produce while you sit and watch. Because you can't stop them. How bad can it get? They're going out into your field in, in, in your backyard. And they're eating your gardens. And there's nothing you can do to stop them. They're taking the food right off your table. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Zion was, uh, Jerusalem, a beautiful city. Under Solomon, uh, who built up and developed Jerusalem, it's this gorgeous, beautiful city that that people came from all over to behold its glory and its beauty. And he said, what is your life like now? It's like a hut in the vineyard or a shelter in the vineyard or a hut in a cucumber field. What's he talking about? At the time of harvest, they would go out and just cobble together uh, some something for over their head and maybe to keep the wind off of the windward side. It was sparse, it was bare, it had dirt floor. It was almost like a cardboard home that we see in some of these countries in the uh, places of poverty where uh, outside the garbage pits they have taken cardboard boxes and, and built something in which to live and keep the elements off. But there's no comfort, there's no beauty, there's no uh, joy in a place like that. And God says to them, this is what Zion has become. You're like a bunch of these temporary shanty huts out in the field at harvest. And uh, your beauty and your glory has been lost uh, because of your rebellion. Unless the Lord of hosts has, had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? So, in other words, he's saying, if I had not spared you a few people, you would have been completely annihilated like Sodom and Gomorrah. It is only my kindness that has left you a remnant. And how do you act? And here's what he says, verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Listen to this reaction of God to their religious worship. 
They're continuing to offer sacrifice. And God says, I'm sick of it. It's a stench in my nostrils. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. I'm tired of them. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. He says, when you gather for worship, it makes me sick. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. You have these special celebrations and the holidays, and I'm just tired of them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. In other words, as James puts it in the New Testament, pure religion and undefiled is this, to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to and to remember the widows and the orphans and to care for them and to do good for them. This is true religion. In other words, what God is getting at here is it's not the celebration because you're going through the motions. You're following the liturgy. But your heart is not in that. You're just going through all of this rambling along because... You're hoping that somehow I'll be impressed and keep heaping blessing on you. And he says, I'm really sick of it. Your hearts are wicked. They're far from me. And you come and you celebrate and you worship, but you don't do what is right. You continue to do what is wrong. You continue to, to act in rebellion. And you do not do the things that are righteous in my sight. Friends, this message of Isaiah is perhaps more timely for us than, than so many other passages because it, it strikes home to where we are in our own nation today. You know, a after uh, 9-11, we uh, made a big deal of in God we trust and all of that and everybody was talking uh, about religion. We didn't change. We didn't begin to act differently. Look at all that's happened since then. Look at the things that have gone on in our country since that time. As we have continued to go from bad to worse. There's no genuine repentance and we go through the motions and we follow 
uh, the religious celebrations and we go through the liturgy, but where is the heart? Where is the action? Where is the care for the poor and the underprivileged and the orphan and the widow? Where is our action toward those who are in need? John says in his first letter, if your brother comes to the door and says, uh, I have need of food and shelter and clothing, and you say to him, depart, be warmed and filled, I'll pray for you. And you don't give him what he needs if you have it in your capacity. He says, the love of God is not in your heart. How can you ignore people that have need? And so he's chastising them because they go through all the religious kind of celebration, but their heart is far from God. And so he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. And now comes Isaiah the evangelist. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In this statement, there is a powerful declaration of God's love for us. It's as if he were saying, were you listening? Did you hear what I said about your outwardly religious practices, but your inward rebellion? Did you hear that? Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. There is an answer. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall become white as snow. Do you see the flurries this week? A few of them hit here and there. You know, if you look at them very closely, they're clear. They take on a white appearance as they collect and uh, come together. But they're really clear and pure. And then when they fall together in a heap, they take on this glistening whiteness. And God is saying to them, it doesn't matter how badly you've sinned. It doesn't matter how rebellious you've been. It doesn't matter how far you've strayed. If you will listen to me, If you will come sit with me and and let's talk about it. 
Michael mentioned to us the basic meaning of the word confession, homo logao, to say the same thing God says about our sin, to agree with him. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Let's come to terms. Let's have a meeting of the minds. Say the same thing I'm saying. In your heart, recognize the truth and agree with me. And though your sins be as scarlet, I will wash you and make you whiter than snow. I will build you up. I will give you strength. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. I will restore your glory. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And then Isaiah shifts yet again. And even though Judah has become a wicked nation, there is a promise of a hope. In the future, how the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silvers become dross, your drink diluted with water, your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe. And chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. If ever there were a description of politics in America, those verses certainly are it. And even though that does not mean every single politician fits this, it is the general climate of politics in our country. Our rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They don't defend the, the orphan, nor the widow's plea come before them. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversities and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you, and will smelt away your dross as with lye, and I will remove all your alloy. In other words, God is saying here, I'm going to repair you. I'm going to fix you. I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning, And you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together and those who forsake the Lord shall come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired 
In other words, the the idols. And you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away. Or a garden that has no water. And the strong man will come under, will become tender. His work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together. And there will be none to quench them. And so Isaiah says there is a judgment coming, but there is also a restoration coming. There's going to be a healing of your land. This first chapter is an overview of this whole book that exposes to us the backslidden condition, the rebellious condition of Judah and of the northern neighbor, Israel. It talks about an empty religion that has no meaning. And yet in the midst of that, God calls out to the individual. Come, let us reason together. Though your sin be as scarlet, It shall be white as snow. I will cleanse you. I will restore you personally. And I will restore your land. There will be a judgment. There will be uh, destruction ultimately. You are going to go away in captivity. These things are coming. But one day I will restore the glory of Jerusalem. We know when that day will be because it never occurred in the Old Testament era. And even though they were attempting to rebuild the temple and the beauty of Jerusalem during the time of Jesus, the fact was that Jesus himself prophesied that there would come a time when not one stone would be left upon another. And when Titus came in in AD 68 and began to destroy the city, uh, they had gilded many of the stones with gold. And they literally took them apart to get the gold out of them. There was not one stone left upon another. And so Judah has not yet seen the fulfillment of this prophecy. And yet our God keeps his word. He cannot lie. And so there is a future for Judah, a day that is coming, when he will restore its glory and its beauty. And it will be a place of righteousness with honest judges, and with faithfulness. And that day will be when he himself returns and plants his feet there and begins to reign and rule upon this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. We have a great day coming that we're going to have a chance to participate in Even if we die before he comes, he will raise us up to be a part of that grand and glorious future 
we have that promise from the Lord. And Judah has that promise from the prophets. I want us to take a moment this morning and ask ourselves the question. Do we go through the motions of being Christian? Do we practice rituals and rites, follow rules and regulations without our heart being committed to the Lord? God is looking for people who are sold out to him, who love him with all their heart, who worship him from the depth of their being, who honor him with their true heart and mind. And whatever we do in terms of celebration and Quote, religious practice. I don't really like the word religious, but whatever we do as religious practice, we do from the heart. We're going to pack shoeboxes tonight. You know, there's two ways to do that. And when you're all done, they'll look the same when we stack them down here. You can put a bunch of stuff in a box and feel good about being here and say, I've done OCC another year. Or you can think about what you're putting in that box and the child that will receive it. And from your heart, be in prayer before the Lord. You can laugh and have fun and Talk amongst yourselves, even while you pray. And you can be praying for the child that's going to receive that and asking God's favor and grace to shine upon their lives and take that box and make it a special blessing in their hands to know that there's a God in heaven that knows their name and loves them. You can come to church because it's a thing to do. It's maybe a little more of a thing to do on a day like today. A little more effort. Or you can hardly wait to get here because it's a chance to come together with family and celebrate Jesus Christ and the life that he's given us. You can read the Bible because, well, that's what Christians do. I'll read 10 minutes a day. Or you can pursue the word of God because you have a hunger and thirst to know him. And you want to discover all that he's about. And the time flies by and you can hardly put it down when you have to get ready for work or whatever you're about to do. Because it's been such a joy to be in his presence. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? God is weary with people who go through religious practice, but heartless 
lack of devotion. But he delights in those who from the depth of their being love him with all their heart and want to be near him and want to be like him. Father, I pray this morning that we would take to message, to take to heart Isaiah's message and come and reason with you. And if we're not in agreement with you, that we would come to agreement with you. That our lives would be clean and holy and pure in your sight. Lord, that you would respond to us because of the love of our heart for you. We know that we love you because you first loved us. But these people in Judah had been loved by you and without the sense of a donkey or an ox, still revolted and rebelled. Lord, you have loved us with an everlasting love. Give us the grace to love you with all of our mind and heart and soul and strength. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.